0: Hey, doing everyone thank you for tuning into this episode of ready to record from blue girl studios my name is daniel the d3 cohen i am your host and i'm speaking to you from blue girl productions worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage i'm a 19 year old aspiring musician engineer and producer and like many of you i make music in my own home studio you know some of today's biggest hit work from home studios so maybe we can help one of you guys accomplish your big dreams In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Mad Dog Studios owner and president of Mojave Audio, Mr. Dusty Wakeman. That was part one. You can check it out on PantheonPodcast.com, as well as our site, BlueGirlProductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Also on PantheonPodcast.com, you can check out a lot of great other music podcasts, such as Rock and Roll Librarian, Rock and Roll Archaeology, and many more. But right now, we're going to jump into part two with Dusty Wakeman. So let's go.
1: When we started, there really wasn't much in the middle of the market. You right. Know, the, the, the cheap Chinese stuff had appeared on the market. And then there was the old standbys and you know, Neumann, AKG... Uh, those companies, Sennheiser, Sennheiser, there wasn't a lot in the middle. And we were the first to manufacture in China, but use high-end American components, like Jensen transformers and, you know, new old stock J and tubes and all of our FETs and resistors and capacitors, they're all sourced here. They're all, you know, either made or ordered to David specs, And then we have to collect all that stuff and ship them over to the factory. And fortunately, we, we have a great partner, a great factory that dates back to the beginning of Chinese mic manufacturing. And that's a whole nother two hour conversation, that whole history, but we're very fortunate. We have a great engineer that we work with him and David and he have a lot of respect for each other and they're smaller. Um, and we've just been very fortunate in that relationship, very high quality. Our you know, we have very few problems. The biggest problem we have is is the American-made tubes. That's what's more likely to to fail. Right. You know, the, the workmanship and everything of the, of our mics is is really great. And we we burn in all the tube mics for 24 hours. All the mics get listened to and signed off by David personally. I don't know how scalable that is because we're growing. I don't know, if, and he's getting older, so. I don't know if we'll always be able to do that, but at this point, he's still doing it. He he listens to every mic. You know, the quality is real, really good. Very few problems. But yeah, we were the first company. A lot of companies are doing that model now. There's a lot of competition at the middle ground, but but we were really the first to do that. And it's worked out really well.
0: Right. If your vocal audio is any indication, it's been a fantastic model for for... You guys, and for everybody who's followed it, I am curious since I've been looking at it, and I was initially scared before we hit record because you don't have a pop filter on it. Uh, but it seems not to be a huge issue. What is the mic you're running right now?
1: That's an MA50. That's our, our kind of. We call it our starter Mojave. It's five ninety nine. It's a. It's the only one we make that doesn't have a transformer. It's transformerless, and. I see. We're big transformer people here. We're all about transformers. But Neumann makes a mic called the TLM-103 that I am not a fan of. I yes. think it's not a nice sounding mic. But they sell boatloads of them because it says Neumann on it. And I really challenged David to go after that mic. He said, here, you know, take a TLM-103 and make it sound. What would you do to make it sound good? Because the Neumann capsule, the capsules are killer. In fact, just as an aside, David right. did a tube mod for a friend to a TLM-103. Uh, and it sounded fantastic. We A-beat it against my 47. And it's like, yeah, those those mics can hang together. So it's not the capsule. It's the components they're using in the circuit. And it just pissed me off how sure. many they sell and how many people I see using those mics. So. Ours sounds twice as good for half the price. That's that's the MA fifty. I
0: I can appreciate that. Uh, my my mentor, a guy named Phil Milner, a lot of uh drum and guitar recording sessions were uh were it was it was always a choice in his locker between between the Royers and and the uh the TLM one hundred threes. He has a pair of them, a black one and a silver one tried to sell me one of them a few years ago, funnily enough. Um, But uh, I don't know, as much as I appreciated the Neumann gear, I I was, I was always more happy when the Royers were on.
1: Yeah. That's the tracking set. That's understandable. That's understandable. I,
0: I, I do admit though, I, I would love to get at least one and, uh, and uh, find some interesting schematics. I'm I'm a tinker, so I I I love modifying gear. I I think no no instrument I own right now I haven't touched or modified in some way. Um, so I'd I'd love to get a at least one of them and and see if I can improve the sound just um on my own time. But speaking of that, I'm I'm curious, um, you as a president of a microphone company, uh, what do you think when people do? Mic mods and 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 personalizing equipment in 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 that way.
1: I think it's fantastic. I mean that part of the Mojave story that we didn't really touch on. In the nineties, David the Chinese mics were appearing, and David liked to tinker with them. Same thing: get a hold of them, take a ninety-nine dollar um, MXL two thousand one, and play around with it and make it sound better. And of course his thing was tubes. So he would add a tube and a, and a transformer. So he was having fun doing that. And he just had, a before Warrior Labs started, he had a one man shop in his garage in Fullerton and would do stuff like that just on a one off right. basis. And in 2001, he published an article in Tape Op Magazine, I can't remember what it's called, but you can look it up. It's like from Berlin to Barstow or something like that. It's called, which is a a desert reference um, on how to take. I read it years ago. I
0: don't, I don't remember the name either, but I, I I did read it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it tells you how to take one of those mics and, and do a tube mod on it. So that got a lot of interest. So the guys at Royer, Rick and John and David, this is before I came on board decided to offer a kit that you could buy. It was 350 bucks and it sent you all the parts you needed. It sent you an ammo case to build the power supply in because David loves to build stuff in ammo cases, being the desert rat that he is. And his his cabin is on the edge of the 29 Palms Marine Base. So there's plenty of ammo cases to be had out in the desert. And the more rusted they are, the better. Uh, he also builds headphone amplifiers and power amplifiers in ammo cases, all sorts of cool stuff. And he they made this kit available, and it was really popular. And then in 2003, he published another article on how to take a an STC, a small diaphragm Marshall MXL mic, and do a mod on it. And at the time, you could buy, like, the... The Marshall, you could get the small diaphragm and the and the large diaphragm as a package, and it was like 170 bucks or something like that, like really cheap. So these kits were really popular, but in fact they were way too popular. And the thing that you learned is the kit business does not scale. Uh, it's great as a small little thing, but when it gets big, you've got people all day long calling David Warrior, who is, it's incapable of having a short conversation about anything technical on the phone all day long helping these people troubleshoot because they built the thing and it doesn't work and you know maybe they switched pin one and pin six who knows on the XLR it could' be, it's usually something simple but way way too much labor intensive uh, to be to be scalable so that's when they decided you know we should actually just manufacture, Mojave, you know, these mics under the Mojave name. And that way we'll have quality control and we can do it the right way and get out of the kit business. And that's what led to the birth of the first MA200. So we have a whole history with kit. I just got an email yesterday, somebody wanting to know if we had PC boards and we still have a few PC boards. You know, I shouldn't be saying this on a podcast, but I will anyway. We still have a few left from the kits. Uh, If you look at the tape op articles, you had to make your own PCBs. But if you knew about the kits later on, we actually, you know, David had them made. And we try to hang on to a few, you know, once a year, somebody will ask and we'll sell them a couple of PCBs for their kit. So I'm all for it. I think it's great. I mean, we do get some questions on the Mojave's on like, well, I want to change this or that. And our response is usually a, it won't work, and b, why would you want to do that? But I understand, you know, if you can swap it, you want to swap it just to see what happens. So I'm all for it. I think it's great.
0: Cool, man. No, I mean, I, I I'm glad you brought up MXLs because I, I, I bought one of those kits uh, about eight years ago, or not, not a kit. Uh, uh, one of the one of their large diaphragm small diaphragm condenser kits or packs excuse me right. um and and they had gone down to under a 100 bucks wow um and uh that that's how i learned how to use condenser mics and uh nowadays they don't sound particularly good i the the only actual mxl mics i use are a pair of mxl ribbons that i bought For 50 bucks each and what i use them for is very very heavily uh compressed you know crushed to hell room mics right um right
1: and they're probably great at that they probably work work
0: awesome for uh an effect like that they're fabulous yeah they're not they're
1: not giving you all that stuff you'd have to filter out anyway so
0: right right um
1: well you should you should do the tube You're a perfect candidate to do the tube mod on the large diaphragm. I want
0: to I want to do a tube mod on it, or or something similar. And I, uh, the the small diaphragm is completely broken, so I want to. There's a, I know people make replacement capsules for them that are uh, Neumann-esque. You know, right. turn turn your turn your cheap uh, MXL mic into a KM84 kind right. of. Right. Kind of thing, <laughs> but I, I've I will admit I've thought about it. You know, it's, it's a it's an interesting thing to to think about when when you're a tinker and and you and you like modifying your own gear.
1: You know, one thing I've learned over the years. I mean, I wish that I knew when I was a working recording engineer what I know about microphones now would have been useful knowledge. Uh, but mm. I've learned. Over the years of doing this, I mean, the Chinese capsules are really consistent and they're really, you know, quite adequate. They're quite good because they figured out a way to mass produce them. They're not handmade, so they're very consistent. And it's really Mm -hmm. the electronics that make all those cheap mics sound bad. That's really what you're hearing. More so than capsule things. People think, oh, change the capsule, be a different mic. Well, maybe but in most cases not it's really more the electronics
0: i think really unless like in my case the the mic is completely broken i think the only benefit of changing capsules is if you're changing a mic's polar pattern right especially especially in small diaphragms where you know a lot of them to have screw on capsules you can change a change a uh, cardioid to an omnidirectional with just a essentially a screw top.
1: Yeah, unfortunately we don't make them currently, but we had the MA100 and the MA101 fet which were tube and small tube and solid state small diaphragms and they were like that they had interchangeable screw-on cardioid and omni caps and amazing microphones. We didn't sell many of them, which is why we stopped making them. I hope to bring them back one day cuz they They sound amazing. The MA-100, the tube is greatest snare mic ever.
0: You know, it's funny you bring them up because they're a few months ago. Well, I guess over a year ago now thinking about how, how the pandemic has happened, but before the pandemic started, I had actually been kind of scouring for, for the uh, M101 FET. Yeah.
1: Gorgeous, gorgeous microphones, man. Oh, they sound so good. And a lot of it, I mean, they're, they're, the reason they're odd-shaped like that, why the body looks like that, is in, a, in order to accommodate the Jensen Transformer. It's got a big right. transformer in it, so we had to make the body kind of swell from the small diaphragm to the <laughs> big body. I never was crazy about the, the look, but I didn't know anything about design, and it just kind of came out the way it came out. So probably if we re-release those mics, we'll do a, an update, a cosmetic update on them but wouldn't change anything with the sound. They sound fantastic.
0: I I completely agree. You know, it's funny uh, that you bring up the the design of the M one Oh one FET, the, the shape of it, because to me, it always looked like some of the uh, audio reference mics, you know, those really, they really are small. And right. then they blow up just to, just to get the XLR connector on the back.
1: And is that um, a good thing or a bad thing
0: for you? Aesthetic is in the eye of the beholder, if you like it or not. But I don't know, though. I always thought that the M101 was a unique aesthetic compared to a lot of the uh, traditional small cap condensers out there.
1: Right. Well, it it was just a a matter of, you know, form following function, because I know nothing about design. Now we're working with an industrial designer. Colin found this great industrial designer and all the mics that are in the pipeline right now he's helped us with and it's kind of like hiring a graphic designer for your website or your logo or something. It just, even though you may have the idea, Mm -hmm. it just takes it to that next level. And this guy's great. We're just loving. We'll send him a picture and say, we want to combine this mic with this mic and make it look like a Mojave. And you know, what we get back is way better than what I conceived in my head. So uh, we'd, If we bring those mics back, we'll probably run them through him and let him spruce them up a little bit. One thing the one-on-one Fed had that was interesting, because they sound so great on drums, we put a pad on it so that you could use it on snare drum or on, you know, really loud stuff. But we just had a a little push-push switch that was inside the mic because the only time it had a lot of headroom, the only time Mm -hmm. you need the pad is if you were putting it on something really loud, like up close on a snare. So, in order to engage it, you had to unscrew it, press one button that was really easy to find, screw it back. And a lot of people didn't like that. Got a lot of you know negative pushback there's like, I don't want to open the microphone. That's too scary. And we kind of thought, you know, well, we trust you, you'll be okay. So I would probably change that too. I would probably make it an external pad that people are more accustomed to on that mic. Sure. That mic on hi hat and underneath the snare and an MA one hundred on top of the snare. And that's that's living, man.
0: I can't say I disagree with you hearing those mics uh in demos and seeing what they could do. It I'm excited to find some uh <laughs> I'm excited to find some of the small caps on 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 the used market since you don't make them anymore. Um and I'd be intrigued to see if they get made again.
1: And Uh, just FYI, if you do find some, we do have a few of the capsules left, replacement capsules. So if you find one that, you know, if there's a problem with that, we do have some.
0: Cool. Because you've talked about drum mics, um, I am curious, of the Mojave lineup, how, how would you mic a complete drum set?
1: Well, it would depend on the genre, number one. I would either use MA-300s. I would most likely e- either use MA-300s or 301 FETs for overheads. And the reason I picked those over the 200 and the 201s is they have pads. So if you need the pad, hmm. you have them there. If I'm doing jazz or acoustic-y stuff and not going to need the pad, then the 201 or the 200 would be would be great. Um I use two hundreds forever on drum overheads, and they just work great. Um, but I like the versatility of the pads if you're doing louder stuff for acoustic-y music, you know, non like hard rock stuff. I like the tubes. If I'm doing like rock stuff, I really like the speed of the fets. I like the way they pull the snare drum up; they're just a little faster. And we're talking. Mm you know, a 10 or 15% difference, but it's not night and day. I mean, it's hard because any of our mics work great on overheads. I mean, when I used to do the Dwight Yoakam records, especially the later ones where we had like ridiculous budgets to spend, I used to always rent a pair of 251s for drum overheads and our MA-1000, that's basically David's 251. So I haven't actually personally used... Those on drum overheads, but I know they would sound gorgeous. But the ones I do have experience with, those would be my choices. But I've got a friend, Wally Ingram, who's a top, top drummer here in town. You know, Wally? I mean, he's got a pair of MA50s on drum overhead and loves them. And he's actually experimenting with different models now. He'll probably end up with a pair of 301s overhead. Um, the 50 is amazing, but without a transformer, it just doesn't have quite that transformery bottom end that the other mics have. There's just no way around it.
0: Right. I, I, I can understand that, you know, a a lot of the stuff that I do is jazz and funk. I'm, I'm in a, a, a jazz and funk band. I've been in it since I was nine years old. Um, and you know in the time of pandemic it was it's, you know we we just started to try and get uh more clients in my studio and then the pandemic happened and you know as as i it was great for me because it got me uh got me figuring out uh ways to uh, mic drums figure out my room figure out what i wanted from from microphones and preamps and things like that, and um, I could I can definitely understand based on what you're talking about uh, how how the the transformers in mics like a two o one or two hundred or in 30, 301s and three hundreds with pads uh, would be useful, especially in a situation like mine where it's a lot of jazz and funk, right. I'd, I'd be especially interested to hear them over top uh, as an overhead for a um, for a smaller kit like an 18 12 14 or twenty twelve fourteen, 14 um, right in a situation like that because I, I feel like um, from what I've heard I don't know why but all all of the Mojave mic demos I've heard have been on larger kits right um, I, I'd be interested to see uh, A pair of your mics namely the 201s because that's what i can think of uh and remember hearing on drums um on a on a smaller kit because i feel like that would bring out some additional bottom end and and help the kick mic
1: right yeah and continuing on with the kit i would those are my overhead choices i would have a ma100 on the snare top uh, a 101 FET on the snare bottom, a 101 FET on the hi-hat. And toms, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. I love the 100s on toms. I love the 101 FETs on toms. I love any of the large diaphragms on toms. You know, that would be a, a tough call as to which one I would use. because They all sound great on toms. Probably go with the you know the small diaphragms just for ease of placement. And then outside the kick drum, at present sure. we don't we don't make a an inside the kick drum mic, you know, like a beta fifty-eight or any of those type uh AKG D112s or any of those. But the 301 FET is amazing right. outside the kick for gathering all that low-end information. So I would have a 301 FET outside the kick. And then for room mics, probably, you know, if I was sticking with Mojave's, probably MA200s or even MA50s. But I love painting that picture between condensers and ribbons. So most likely I would have a mm-hmm. pair of Royers, pair of 121s or my 122s. I've got the 122 Mark twos, which I really love. I'd have those out in the room. Um, I've got a funny story course, for you for sure. about small jazz kits. I got a call. Do you know who uh, Richard Perry is?
0: Famous producer. I know the name. I don't know him well, but I... I he
1: did the Pointer yeah. Sisters. He did Harry Nelson Just a legendary guy. You know, a generation before me. Known for being out of his mind. Brilliant guy, but out of his mind to engineers. Like, <laughs> horrible to engineers. Abusive. And... I got a call, I was driving back from San Francisco, I was on The Five, and I got a call from Ellis Sorkin at Studio Referral Service and saying, hey, you wanna do a Richard Perry session tonight? It was a last minute thing, it was with Rod Stewart. And I'm like, sure, I mean, you know, at this point in my career, this was towards the end of, it was probably like early 2000s. And I would do stuff that I would have said no to before, you know, I would I would say yes to just for the experience. You know, it's like, yeah, what's he going to do? Make sure. me cry? <laughs> you know, I think I'll be okay. So it, it's when, you know, Rod Stewart made three albums of the American classic songbook. Uh, and they were huge records. And this was for the first one of those. And I can't even remember, I'd have to look it up, what American standard song it was they did. But they needed to get in that day because there was some elderly piano player, jazz piano player, that they wanted to have on the session. And they had to do it that day. So they were going to schlep all the way to Burbank and and do the session. And they knew I had a good piano and we could do it and everything. So I showed up and the drummer showed up. He was this elderly jazz drummer and had one of those tiny jazz kits. And I put up my Royer SF12, Mm. which is the stereo overhead, and put up a snare mic and a kick mic. And he said, Hey, you know, hey, man, aren't you going to mic up my kit? And I said, Look, you play, I'll record, (laughs) and you come in. And if you're not happy, I'll put as many mics up as you want. So he played a little bit, came in, and he was like, Oh, man, I love it. Don't touch a thing. So that was just an SF12 on a, one of those tiny, you know, perfectly tuned jazz kits. You know, it just sounded so good, and right? Everybody I, loved it.
0: I presume, most. I presume most open bass drum.
1: Uh, you know, I can't remember. Honestly, can't remember. I think that I think the kick drum had a, a head on it. I Think it had a front head on it. Most jazz kits do have but a front no, head on
0: them, but no, but no muffling. It's, it's, oh, uh, yeah. that's oh uh, yeah yeah I, no, no, no no muff no muff
1: yeah yeah and of course he was an amazing drummer so it sounded amazing and that session was funny because richard perry the whole time was on the phone trying to get reservations in some like La dome or some hollywood eatery for him and rod to go to after the session <laughs> and, and rod came over he pulled up in his rolls royce with his driver wearing a white linen suit and looked like a million bucks. And just, I'd never met him before. You know, I've got musicians that worked with him before, but I'd never met him. Could not have been cooler. Slap me on the back. Hey mate, how's Mm -hmm. it going? Super like down to earth, nice to everybody, gracious. But Richard Perry never even like really talked to me. I just kind of did my thing. He'd be on the phone and goes, you know, "I, I had a U47. I had a the, Upright bass player was in the vocal booth and it had a 47 on it down near the the sound hole, And, you know, he kind of looked over for a second and said, put a 451 on the neck. Okay. So I added that. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of it for direction. And we, we did the session and got done, got a take and there was a mistake in the, in the bass track. He made a clam. And they were like ready to walk. Okay, sounds great. Let's go to lay dumb. And the bass player was still out there. And I just reached over and said, you know, hey man, you want to fix the thing? He goes, yeah, punch me in. So I just did the punch in and, you know, no big deal. And Richard Perry looks at me and was like, you just took control of my session. And I'm like, oh shit, here it comes. He said, I like that. And walked out. And that was the only time I ever spoke to Richard Perry. (laughs) but I got a great story out of it and I did get a platinum record out of it for recording that one song. So in fact, it's, there's Rod right there.
0: Oh, as they do. Yeah. I, I, I can do. understand that. Not, I, I. well, it's, it's funny. I was, I was the troops once, uh, a long time ago at this point. Well, a long time ago for me, the 19 year old, but, uh, I worked for, a pedal company holly company tiny itty bitty and uh you know i I, i'm I'm gonna be talking to Ivana Manley next monday and and if she's the if she's the goddess of uh or the queen of of tubes then my then my uh my boss theo hartman we could call him uh the king of transistors we made seven different fuzz pedals
1: oh wow Mm -hmm.
0: Man, and, uh, I'm and amazed
1: by mm-hmm. how many pedals there are. I think there's a lot of microphones out there, look at pedals. Jeez.
0: Right. Right. Well, you you got to look no further than the I mean, we're both bass players, the the bass community. You you think of you think of bass players in in the old school sense is like, you know, plug straight in either the board or or B15 and you're on your way. These a lot of these guys have some crazy pedal boards. I think no further than um Juan Alderete or or Yannick Wazdala and I think of, you know, their walls in their home studios are just covered in pedals, you know. Wow. Do you know um, who Miles Mosley is? Again, another name I know, but I, I don't really know his uh his reputation. He's a,
1: he's a young guy. He's probably in his thirties, but to me he's, you know, young guy. Part of this L.A. jazz scene that Kamasi Washington came out of mm-hmm. and Thundercat. Thundercat plays electric. If you don't know Thundercat, you got to check him out. He's monstrous. Th-
0: no, I, I do. It's it's funny. I, I have because I'm connected to the SF jazz scene. I actually have mutual friends with him and his brother, Ron. Um, He I actually heard a recording of him. Just strange aside, I heard a recording of thundercat playing upright that was a that was an interesting one i've right. never if heard him play remember, upright. if i can find it i will i will send it to you um well
1: check out he, miles
0: was, Mosley. he's all
1: over our website but he's an upright player but he plays i mean he he has this acoustic one in place traditional but his main thing mm-hmm. is is um playing a blast cult bass and those are made to be amplified uh, they're they're not solid but they don't have a lot of tone like acoustically so that they won't feed back and he's mm-hmm. a he's like the jimmy hendrix of upright bass he's just amazing There like i said there's a lot of stuff on our website you can you can check him out but miles came out of that same jazz scene as those guys tony austin the drummer producer engineer who works with all those cats they're all all buddies and mojave users but Yeah, Miles on the upright bass with the pedals is just amazing. I'm pretty much a traditionalist, but I do like my my octave divider, my octave box. And, you know, I played a little funk and used an envelope filter before and a chorus. And, you know, I love uh, for when I'm doing sessions for people, you know, amp plugins, SVTs and B15s and stuff mm-hmm. like that. A lot of times, if I do something for somebody, I'll give them the raw track, but then I'll give them a process track with what I think sounds good for the song and what I played through. Because a lot of times, I need to play through one in order to get the right feel.
0: No, I've I've done that myself. I mean, that's that's the that's kind of the modern thing to do, isn't it? It's 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 funny that you mention that you mentioned that. I I uh, I did. I, I jokingly call it my crowning achievement i i played upright bass on a metal album oh cool, cool. Uh, a very a very funny uh my buddy jack messing who just moved down to culver city a few months ago he's like hey you play upright right i was like yeah what's up he went, uh could you could you be on my on this track i went sure what is it he went uh, it's a metal track in five different time signatures with oh, a Latin cool. section in the middle of it. And so I went, okay. And I, when I, when I did it, I sent him along a, a dry track and a process track. Um, you know, it's, it's what we got to do nowadays, right? Yeah. Make, yeah. Make ourselves, uh, make ourselves as useful as possible. But my, my favorite thing is still running through I can not I i can't, I, I'm not sure if you can see by my right shoulder, but that's a, uh, 64 baseman with its original 215 cab
1: oh nice i love it one of my favorite bass amps and i've played like big venues with it is a dual showman i Mm. love a dual showman on bass with anybody's 410 cabinet you know
0: They're gorgeous, man. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Dual Showmans because that was the, uh, I believe that was actually the original rig of the Sly and the Family Stone bassist Larry Graham when he was in Sly and the Family Stone before Graham Central Station.
1: So Larry Graham, when Bad Dog was in Venice, Larry Graham lived in Marina del Rey. And a producer, Mm -hmm. engineer, songwriter named Preston Glass lived in Marina del Rey. So Mad Dog Venice was kind of like their neighborhood 24 track studio they would come work in. So Larry got to hang out mm. with him a bunch. And the first time he came there, I was in the other room, I was in the like the lounge on the phone or something. And I hear this just ungodly sound. And I go into the control room and there's Larry playing bass and uh, with his skipper hat on, he would <laughs> always look very dapper with his, his admiral's hat and just an amazing guy. I was just going through, I just bought a new scanner at home because I'm trying to scan all these photos that I have to put on the, the Mad Dog Studio Facebook page. And I found his autographed 8x10 that used to be on the wall. So it'll be popping up there soon.
0: I'll have to look out for it. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm from San Francisco and play in funk band. So the the, the, the two most prominent guys who... Who I think of when I let me I, guess who the other one is? Rocco, right? Yep, of course, God. of course, yep,
1: of course, yes. And
0: then, uh, and then outside of that, uh, George Porter Jr. I actually know at uh, yeah. least of the meters. Uh, right. He's, he's a dear old friend of my father's and became a very very good friend of mine. Actually, the kit in my studio he gave me when I was seven years old.
1: No way, <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Yeah, five five piece pearl that that he uh, he delivered. The day before the night before flying out to Jazz Fest 'oh nine or something.
1: Wow. Well, I'm from Houston, so I was already a meters fan and actually like saw them in clubs in Houston and Austin way back in the early Lucky. 70s, early and mid seventies. So I've been a George Porter fan since then. And Ziggy lived walking distance from Mad Dog Venice for a while. He lived on one of the walking streets. And so he was in and out of there a bunch. Used to come in. I remember he would he would play on something, and then he would say, "Okay, let me double that." And he would just like want us to bust all the mics down to one track, and he would just like double a fill or double a chorus or stuff like that. I mean, he would tell you what he wanted to do, and it was just genius. It was like, wow, the the effect that that had.
0: The man you know he 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 loves talking about him being the king of the funky drums i i can't deny he he isn't he 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 really did invent funk drumming i mean oh, yeah. god love james brown's drummer but you know there there was there was the james brown funk and then there's and then there's him
1: <laughs> right yeah i totally agree i totally and,
0: agree uh, yeah, it's it's just a beautiful thing. Actually, it, it's funny he he's a huge influence, and and of course George Porter Jr. is an, a a giant influence. And it's funny that you're also a, a a Houston guy and talked about ZZ Top because my number one instrument is a modified uh Japanese fifty one reissue Precision because oh cool both because both Dusty and George Porter played tally basses.
2: right
1: right. Cool man, I had a beautiful, I think it was a seventy-nine telebase. It was ivory colored that yet again I didn't play for too long and then sold it that I wish I still had. And that particular year is when they had started making them again after not making them for a long time. And they had a bunch of the old parts. So this one was was new in 71 or 79. I think it was 79, but had like old parts on it.
0: Well, they start they started they started remaking them with the single coils in 68, I think. Right. And then and then the, then the big fat humbuckers came in what, 71 or 72? 72. Well, this
1: was single coil, so maybe it was 68. It was whenever they started making them again.
0: You can you can tell when when some of them are new old stock, and when some of them are, are are the newly made, because it was the '60s, right? So they they weren't doing skunk stripes anymore, right? Um, I, I I love looking at some of these listings and seeing seeing the ones that have skunk stripes on the back, because you know those are the new old stock parts from from the '50s, and then you see them without one, and and it's a it's a laminated maple board, and you like, okay, that's that's '60s axe,
2: right, right.
0: Those things got expensive too man that you used to find 68 to 71 telly bases for you know 3 grand they've now doubled and I think and I the, bought mine for
1: 1100 when I got it I can't remember what I sold it for but it was a lot more than 1100 <laughs> But those bases are a lot of work you know they're not for everybody cuz they're big and you know th- I've got small fingers. I I play a jazz bass as my main bass. I switch between jazz and precision, but uh, I think that's why I didn't play the telly bass more because it was just more more work.
0: You know, I, I can understand that. I, I have the, I have the fat thumbs. So I do a lot of the, the wrapping around thumbs and I love my jazz bass. Right. I have a four and a five and I love my jazz. I, I love my four. Um, five is actually the first Fender I bought, the first Fender bass I I ever owned. But um, I love my four. I put it together, um, so it's very personal. But it it that one lives in my living room. But my P basses stay in the studio, right? Um, because I can I can wrap my thumb around my P bass neck, because right just fat enough for me to get over, not not be painful.
1: I've got a sixty one P bass, and it stays in the studio. Um, I've got a a 86, I'm going to say, American-made uh, jazz bass. It's a reissue of the 62. It's got the stack pots. And that was the first year they started. That's probably why I'm getting my ears confused. Uh, that's what the first year they started making them in the U.S. again after them being made in Japan for a while. Mm-hmm. And I bought this off the shelf. I was going on my first tour to Europe. And I didn't want to take my 61P bass. I was too scared something might happen to it. So I bought this jazz bass just off the shelf, at I think Guitar Center in the Valley or something like that. But it became over the years my main axe, just because it's a little more comfortable to play. I keep flat wounds on it, and I do so much like Americana and country and stuff like that that I like flats for that. I keep round wounds on the P bass, and it's got the it's got the rock sound. Um, but, you know, I just never worried about it. I just carry it in a gig bag and go play a gig at a bar and if it gets beer spilled on it or anything, I just wasn't too worried about it. But it's an you know, I lucked out and got an amazing instrument. You know, I've played it on a million recordings.
0: I totally get it. My mine was totally luck of the draw. I had um I had a old bandmate who wanted a bass and I was like, you know. You could buy one of these cheapo Squires, or you could let me find you parts and build one for you. And it's going to sound utterly crazy, but I I have one of the best instruments I've played in a long time that I put together, and the body and neck came from one of the 70s uh, Squire things. Oh, wow. You know, the, the, squi- the Squire 70s uh, thing. And, of course, you know, I, I mean... I I I'm sure uh, the custom shop hardware and electronics that I put into it have have a lot to do with it. Right. But uh, I lucked out paying paying sixty bucks for for a body and neck, and I sanded off the Squire logo because it was half sanded off anyway by the guy who I bought it from. It my buddy, <laughs> I I had this body and neck in a in a drawer, in my toolbox for a year, and I was just like, you know what, here. Have this axe that I never play. I'm gonna go build this one. I think I spent 500 bucks in total building it, and it's a great gigger, man. I, before the pandemic, it was. I was taking it to every gig. It's a it's that, a great axe.
2: That's great. Yeah, it's good and, to have a gig, a
1: gig base, one that you're not too concerned about that if something happened, it wouldn't, you know, be the end of the world
0: right that one that one, and a five string squire precision it's it's funny I want I, I was playing five string a lot, I played my five string fender jazz bass a lot, but I was playing more p bass, and I went, you know these gigs that I'm on, I need a p bass for, and there it was in my local music shop that's since closed down, but uh there was a <laughs> there was one sitting in the uh in in the corner for four years, and I went. I've come. I went to my buddy who I've who I've known for a decade at this point. And I went, Chris. I never do this, but I've come here to bargain with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, and he went, Oh no, what are you gonna do? Thinking I was, you know, gonna haggle him for a USA fender, you know? Right. I went. I want the base that's been sitting in the corner on on the cheap rack for four years. He went. I can do that.
2: Ah, that's great i that's I, great. I left
0: i left there without paying tax on that instrument nice got it for got it for actual price it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> and and it, you know I, I knew all the guys behind the counter so my buddy went over to his boss who i've known since i was you know my local music shop i've been crapping in diapers in there you know and uh and he looked over said you're buying that thing i nodded and he went Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Authorizing. <it. laughs> That's great. That's
2: great.
1: So yeah. I don't know if you came across this in in your research, but you're talking to the owner of a three string bass. Oh, Do you know wow, about that? Really? Yeah. And I think that Is there's a, a Prescott. Pick- no, it's 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 made by Rick Turner. It's made to look like a Fender. It has a Fender logo on it. Oh wow! And we had a whole oh like, okay made up story about it, but. It, Rick Turner, who's the you know famous luthier who invented Olympic and Turner guitars, um, mm-hmm. he lives in the Bay Area, but he was living down here for a while and working. At, had a shop at Westwood Music, which was like a block from my apartment. I used to go by there all the time, and nobody could tweak my basses like Rick could. It was just they weren't feeling right. It's just like Rick. I don't know what to tell you, but can you make it feel better? Sure, and he would tweak it a little bit, and it would just be perfect. So. <laughs> I got the crazy idea of building a three string bass. It was kind of my smart ass answer to five and six string basses. And I got the idea, there was, I I worked with an artist named Lucinda Williams, who's one of America's greatest songwriters. And her bass player, who's sadly passed away, but he was, he is a a guy named John Chambody. He'd been in a group called Clover with uh, Huey Lewis played on Elvis Costello's first record, just a great guy, great bass player, a real character, big blustery kind of guy. And he would show up. We were working on, I think, Lucinda's first record at Mad Dog in Venice and he shows up and he's got some like, you know, super valuable vintage P bass. I don't know what year it was, but you know, a a collectible and He's doesn't have a case for it. He's dragging, the cable's plugged into it. It's dragging on the ground. He's walking down the street, just holding this thing by the neck. And he broke the G string and just like for a long time, didn't bother to replace it. Like, I never play it anyway. What do I need that for? And that kind of gave me the idea. It's like, I should actually make a three string bass. That was cool. That would be cool. I was playing in Pete Anderson's band at the time. And I made it kind of, which pretty much blues-based stuff. I made it kind of, as, like I say, just a smart-ass statement and asked Rick Turner to build it for me. And I thought we would just use cheap parts and he could throw something together and it would be, we'd have a laugh and that would be that. Well, he would call me up and say, well, I found this really nice body. Uh, It's only going to be 200 more. And I'd say, okay. And then he called me up, I found this great neck, it's a jazz neck and I could sculpt it down, you know, to where it's proportional for three strings. Okay, so the whole thing went like that. And it ended up being like, I don't know, $1,200 base by the time I was done. And this was was in like late eighties or something like that. So not sure what today's prices would be, but that was a good chunk of change. Uh, to spin, but it's an amazing instrument. It's got heavy gauge labella flats on it. It's got foam underneath the bridge, underneath the strings at the bridge, and I kept the uh, the the bridge cover on it, and it's got foam in there. So it's a total like thud master with the foam on it. It's just this great James jameson kind of sound, and played it on a lot of records and a lot of gigs. And for a while, it was my main bass. Then I kind of got lazy and. You know, if if I was doing country and blues, I was okay with the three string. But if it was something where I had to kind of think on my feet, you know, uh, it was nice to have that that G string. So kind of went back to the jazz bass. But I still have it. And there's there's pictures of it floating around. I think there's one on our website. If you go to the my Dusty's Corner, I think it's called. It's, it's buried deep on the website somewhere, but pretty sure there's a picture. I was in Bass Player Magazine once and there was an article about it. Picture of me at Mad Dog with it, but that's that's kind of my what response. To, it would be in the nineties. I'm not I'm not sure when. I have to look it up. I
0: I ask because the the f- one of the former editors in chief of Bass Player, John Herrera, is up here, uh, and he he runs a cool studio in in uh, Oakland. He actually just started working. I'm sure you've as a bass player and a and and a guy in in music world. I'm sure you've heard of the name Scott Divine. Scott's bass lessons.
2: Right. Um, yeah,
0: but John just started working for uh, Scott's Bass Lessons as a presenter and as a as a content creator. Cool. Nice guy. Really nice guy. Cool. Um But the the <laughs> it's very funny that you made a uh, three string electric because when I, when I heard three string I, I I initially uh, thought of nineteenth uh, century upright basses.
2: Right. Right.
0: Because a, a lot of them. There were a lot of three strings, and actually, I don't know if you've ever heard of the company uh, Upton Bass. I think they're in not, North Carolina,
1: right? Not familiar with them.
0: They're they're an upright company. They're a new one, um, not super new. I think they've been around for twenty years, but in the grand scheme of things, they're you know rather new bass luthiers. And uh, I, I a couple of months ago, they posted up a video of this. I think it was an eighteen twenty Prescott. And they said this is one of the coolest finds we've got, and they showed the headstock because it's a three-string. Wow! Wow! And how three was it string.
1: tuned? Was it EAD or?
0: I'm not entirely sure. It was. It was so. It, it was in pretty rough shape, so they didn't have it strung. But I I would presume it was either EAD or DAD, right? Um, or probably some kind of variation on it. Yeah, I've
1: seen pictures of three-string uprights before. I've never seen one in in person, but I was aware that they existed.
0: I would love to play one. I'm really curious how it would change my playing. I'd be very curious to see how it would change the players like uh, Adam Ben Ezra, who's who's one of those kind of newer bass players. He does a lot of solo upright, and he plays a five-string. The high Hmm. c string on it right and then i'd love to see ron carter play one because you know he's ron carter right (laughs) yeah and i would love to see how they mic up because they have smaller bodies than than most uh Hmm. uprights at least the ones that i've seen so i'd love i'd love to see one in a session the random thoughts of of a bass player who it never never stops my
2: friend it never stops oh
0: god no (laughs) no i i'm i'm turning 20 this year which will mean that i've been playing bass now for 14 years of my life and i'm i'm thinking back through all of those years and i go wow that it's one how how did i how am i not six years old still and uh two how how did you get this far and what came before you is also the is also often the the question
1: right well, it's great that you're you're studying that what came before you because there's a lot a lot to learn. I'm I'm a freak on like YouTube videos and music documentaries. Anything about recording, I'll I'll watch any of them. I just I love that stuff. I just watched the Zappa documentary. It was amazing, mm. so good. And I've got a friend who's in the construction business who built Dweezil Studio. And I've got an invitation to go visit there whenever COVID's done. So I just had my second shot last week. So hopefully won't be too long. Can start doing fun stuff like that again. Yep. I'm actually making plans to go to Summer Nam in Nashville. So it's kind of kind of exciting. That's in late really? July. Yep. It's gonna be in person.
0: If uh if Winter Nam actually happens if nothing if nothing gets canceled this year and Winter NAM can actually happen might actually end up going having to go with a friend probably be a sane thing to go down as you know uh i guess some kind of journalist of some sort because i do oh yeah you should if, if they testing.
1: have it you should definitely come i i'm not a big fan of anaheim but you know i think there's going to be so much pinup energy that you know the next Couple of trade shows are going to be pretty pretty rocking parties.
0: The one that I'm most interested in is because NAM is you know NAM, but the one that I'm most interested in I think might have to be AES. What what happens at the AES show?
1: Well, the good news is, w- did, when's the last time you went to Winter NAM in Anaheim?
0: Oh God, years and years and years. Okay,
1: so they built a whole a nother long, building. Long time. There's a whole brand new building right up front. Um, I forget what it's called. But it's, it's a two-level building, and that's where Pro Audio is. They move Pro Audio there. And it's a lot like a Nam show. It's kind of like, because I can go to Nam now and never go to the big part if I don't want to where all the guitars and drums and everything. I usually walk through there just to check it out, but it's so massive. But the Pro Audio Hall is a standalone building, and I can just go in and out of there from the outside and never kind of avoid that whole other part if I want to. So, And everybody goes, yeah, this feels like an AES show. So AES is nice because it's just, there's no instruments. You know, it's just recording and 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 live sound and and that's it so it's a lot smaller they've kind of died off a little bit you know they move it around and everybody finally just refused to go to san francisco anymore because it was too small and way too expensive the moscone center is like so like corrupt they're more corrupt than the javis center in new york is in terms of like the the people that you have to deal with, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And it was just getting smaller and smaller. So it just didn't make financial sense, but then they started rotating it to where every few years it would be here in LA. And the last one here in LA was just great because it's LA. There's so many guys that have like post-production gigs, you know, who can't travel to New York but they can come by in the morning before work and and walk the show. Mm-hmm. So you, the turnout was amazing. It was great. And I wish they would alternate it between New York and LA cuz you know, it's just for a little company like us to have a booth in New York is so expensive cuz there's, you know, two of us have to go and the shipping of our booth. Right. And So a few times I've just gone, like I didn't have a booth, I would just go there and walk the floor and I'd still Mm -hmm. see just as many people. I've done that approach. Um, They're talking about having it in Vegas, the next one in Vegas during NAB. So it would be in a separate hall, a separate place, but connected with NAB. Because they started connecting NAB and, and AES in New York. They happen you know one's upstairs and one's downstairs right. and your pass gets you into both which i think is a great idea and i you know vegas is just set up for trade shows and it's accessible from la you can drive over there and i would i would be into doing that into possibly having a booth there they haven't announced details yet
0: and it's easy to fly in from anywhere else those of us who are outside of outside of la who
1: yeah. It's cheap to fly there. And it's just, it's just set up for trade shows. There's the, infra, there's enough hotels and restaurants in Anaheim. It's just like, you know, dining in Anaheim is brutal.
0: <laughs> oh, we went to Denny's when, when we, and this was NAM 13 when, when we went and we were in Holly um, and, and, and our company, uh, our company shut up shop in 2015. Um,
1: was this the pedal company?
2: What? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right.
0: And I, I felt kind of, I felt kind of bad because we were actually the, the head of the, the head of the company who I, I actually interviewed a few, uh, about a month ago now. Um, he and I at the last hands meeting, because my, 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 uh, my title was tone specialist, so I, so I, kind of, I was the monkey that he handed all the pedals to and blew, and I blew them up so he could figure Dude, out what you should keep the
1: title tone specialist. That's awesome. That applies to everything.
0: My card said pedal specialist. And I loved that. I, I yeah, loved that. That's a and good one. Also, I like tone uh,
1: specialist better though.
0: Yeah. That that was the more official one, but it, I, I remember the last hands meeting we, we did, uh, we had talked about, you know, cause we did, we did, uh, Mutron clones and, uh, and we did a range master clone and seven different kinds of fuzz based on fuzz faces. And we did a Hendrix like octave fuzz. We called it the eight VA. Um, and we did a Tommy Bolin signature and some oh, crazy cool stuff. Cool um, on. and, uh, you know, we, we, we had the, we had big love from, uh, from Steve Stevens and, uh, and, uh, actually, a Uh, a fair amount of our pedals went to pete townsend of the who as well Um, oh
1: cool awesome
0: but the 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 one thing that we wanted to do was you know okay we essentially know what we're doing in eq because we have a filter and we have this uh treble and mid-range booster that's a range master clone so we can figure out how to make eq we have the orange squeezer compressor which we can up power rails on and make. A really decent five knob compressor and if we up power on this germanium transistor circuit we could build this into a it was a it was a whole lot of fun we we were we had talked about channel strips i i still actually want to design it and see what the hell would happen
2: right
0: and just sell a schematic or something if we if we wanted to make it public yeah but,
1: make yourself a couple that'd be great
0: definitely definitely been thinking about it you know that's the that's the ultimate goal right is is make the studio usable for you um, right yep but we we're talking about nam uh every denny's. day we were
1: talking about food and the lack
2: of
0: yeah denny's denny's every day yeah it, it was <laughs> i remember and it was it was it was a little bit terrible the the last day We were just so tired of Denny's and we're all sitting there in our trade show uniforms, you know, had the, had the custom screen printed shirts and everything actually no custom embroidered. We had bowling shirts, custom embroidered with our logo in them.
1: Nice.
0: And, uh, and I remember our, uh, some of, some of our reps who were, who were reps for, for some smaller shops in the UK walked by and went, you guys look sad. And I remember my boss looked at them and went, it's fucking Denny's. Of course Uh, we're sad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. It's pretty much of a fast food wasteland down there. Unless you go to either Morton's or Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, which is great if you go on somebody's expense account, but you know, you're still in Anaheim and it's still packed and, Usually, what we do, I right. always get a hotel that's within walking distance because so, cause I don't want to have to deal with parking. So, I'll we you know, we did that too. I'm not too fussy about, you know, how fancy it is. I just want location. So I've kind of stayed at every shithole within walking distance of, of the convention center, and it's just like, well, I'll try this one this year. I'll try this one this year, but if we have special guests then we, we get in the car and drive somewhere to go get dinner. Cause it's just too brutal.
0: No, I get yeah. it. And, and you know what? I, <laughs> we stayed at a motel six and it was right when motel Sixes kind of turned into the, to what my mother loves calling Ikea chic, the, the, you know, right. faux fancy bullshit that right. they do now.
2: Yeah.
0: And I, I hated it. I, I hated it for one reason. I was like, we're at a motel six. This is not supposed to be a fancy looking hotel. This is supposed to be a motel. Where's right. my 25 cent
2: <laughs> <freaking laughs> massage bed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Eight hours in the car or having a fucking load gear into, into the, onto the showroom floor. And I don't get my 25 cent massage. This is, this is bull.
1: It's a ripoff. It's a ripoff, man. So
0: were you guys over in hall B or hall C? We were in Holly. We were a tiny, tiny.
1: Oh, okay. Downstairs. I love Holly. I usually try to walk through there. We,
0: we did too. We, we were so happy to, to be in Holly. Um, I remember we went onto the main floor for, for a minute, you know, right as we shut our booth up uh, on one of the nights. And, uh, and I, I remember, you know, I I tried out some drums. I'm a drummer and a, and a guitar player and a bass player. So I, I tried out a few different sets of instruments and I, I remember the, the only thing I can remember about actually being on the main floor was I cannot hear what I'm playing. I don't know what this sound, I, I don't know what this piece of gear I'm playing through sounds like. This is hell. Let's go back to the hotel. Oh
2: yeah.
1: You walk in there like hall C the you know the the one with the amps and the guitars. You walk in there and it's just it's just brutal. I don't know how people could be in there. It's a different world from where I am. It's a whole different experience. And I'll I'll pop my head in once in a while. Pete Anderson will do a live performance at the Reverend Guitar Booth, and I'll go play bass with him. So I have to kind of mm-hmm. sprint across the the convention center and get there and you know play play three shuffles with him and then get the hell out. But walking in there is just kind of a shock to the system. And it's so funny because the the people are different yeah. too, you know, in the pro audio, you get pro audio people, but over there you get, everybody looks like they're ready to go on stage. You know, they're wearing their best, whatever happens to be on trend at the moment clothes. And, you know, it's just a different experience. I mean, I've been going to Am show since 1977 So it used to be like spandex pants and moon boots and big hair and that, and now I'm not quite, it's all black and, you know, body piercings and tattoos and stuff, but it's still kind of the same effect. You know, these people are like dressed up for the NAMM show and, you know, bless their hearts. It's great to see them, but it's a different world than
2: the pro audio world.
0: Oh God! I, yeah, I, I've, I, I, I hate to kind of say it, but in in the grand scheme of Nam, it's kind of the difference between Nam Heaven and Nam Hell. Exactly. But Hall E is <laughs> what, cool. The most ir, what's the most? Hall E is cool. I agree. Yeah. Sorry. Can, please.
1: Well, Hall E. I mean, you've got acoustic stuff down there. You know, lots of acoustic mm-hmm. guitars and handmade, folky kind of stuff, but. Then you got, like, anything that's new and weird is going to be in Hall-A. I mean, Hall-E. And that's what I like to see. It's like, a lot of times, they're only there for one trade show. You know, they're not successful. But you see some cool cool stuff down there. It's fun to see. I remember when Royer Labs was in Hall-E. The first time I saw them at a trade show, I was in Hall-E. What,
0: what are the- what would have that been? Winter name, 98?
1: Maybe. Yeah, probably so. 99? Yeah. And it's funny right. because, you know, when I was at West LA Music, I would go all three days. I was store manager and it was, the game was to see how many fancy, expensive dinners you could get out of reps um, and what kind of perks <laughs> you could get. Right. But then over the years, I started going Less and less. And I kind of got it down to where I would go on the first day. I'd go on Thursday. I'd be there by 11 at the latest. And I'd be out of there by mid-afternoon. It's like, well, got to beat the traffic back to LA. I'm out of here. And I would just kind of do a speed trip. And mainly I was just there to see people. Maybe there was one or two products I was interested in. But it was mostly just to see my friends that that's the only time I saw them in the flesh was at Nam shows. And then finally, I was just like, you know what? I don't really need to do that anymore. And I'd stopped going until I started in Mojave. And then it became part of my job. So, you know, now I've been going back since 2005 for all the days. Well, now I don't do Sundays anymore. I've been on Sundays. My staff does it. I actually caught viral meningitis there about six years ago and was in intensive care for four days, isolation, intensive care for four days and on my back for two months. So, um, you know, I've backed it down a little bit and by Sunday, everybody's a zombie, have it. all the business is done.
0: No, I, I know I didn't have it that bad. I didn't get viral meningitis, but I, I certainly got the, uh, the, oh, so be hated nam flu.
1: Nam thrax. Yep. Yep. I, I kind of got the ultimate case of Namthrax.
0: Sounds like it.
1: Yeah, it was it was yeah. bad. It was bad. But I survived it. The doctor said, yeah, somebody probably sneezed, you know, nearby, and you got it. You got lucky.
0: I I don't know if uh if being sneezed on is particularly lucky, but I guess surviving it is. Well, it's gonna be
1: interesting to see what happens because. You know, thanks to COVID, people, there's a lot more awareness of viral particulates in the air, right. and that's just a cesspool down there. It's not, you know, it's recirculated air. You've got people in your face. You got lots of hugging going on, and I'm a hugger too. So, you know, that's part of the deal. I am as well. Yeah, but we just keep a you know huge tub of pure L. And anytime I touch somebody, it's straight there, and just try to keep it as clean as possible. But I don't know what it's going to be like in the future. It'll be interesting.
0: I'm you know? sure. I'm I'm sure at least the first one back will be wearing these.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm more I, than I happy to. Either. In fact, I I wear glasses now. I didn't wear glasses for a long time, but I would wear glasses at the NAMM show because you would get those spitballs. Somebody in your face, you know, somebody from God knows where in the world who's drinking beer at 10 a.m. and getting in your face and, you know, you get the little spitballs and it's like, fuck, there it is. (laughs) I'm infected. So I started wearing glasses just as for protection. I didn't tell anybody why, but just some light colored shades that that's helped. I, I haven't had damn thrax since since then, fortunately. I'm not real keen on getting it again, but you know that was just the thing. You go to the Nam Show, you come home, and two weeks later, you got the flu.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how some people survive it. It's it, I don't know how some people enjoy the the whole ordeal. I mean, I know people try to get in for you know it's the Nam Show. It's the Nam Show. It's the Nam Show. Must go to the Nam Show. It's the holy grail. When I
1: was when I was young, I loved it. You know, when I was mid-20s and manager of West LA Music. It was a blast, but mm, not so much. Now it's work. I mean, I love seeing my friends, you know, and I love showing off our products, but it's, it's a lot of work. It's pretty grueling. My, you know, I'm 67. So at my age, I I don't go out at night, just dinner and that's it. I don't go out to shows. and But, you know, the shows used to be amazing. You know, the parties were they would spend so much money on those and you would see like major, major artists there after hours and, you know, stay up all night doing that and be back on right. the floor at 10 in the morning. It's just the way it was. The interesting thing too is, you know, it used to be a sales show. Yeah. Like, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the booths still have like little offices and you'll see guys sitting there having meetings and they've got a sheet out and they're taking orders from their dealers. But, you know, the way the business is now, at least for us, I mean, there's Sweetwater, there's Vintage King, there's a handful of other dealers, and that's it. And we go see them, you know, we don't, we go to Fort Wayne or we go to Detroit or wherever. Right. We don't do any sales. There's no sales going on at the NAMM show. It's all just branding and promotion and, you know, seeing people. And, and that's fine, but it's not like it used to be where you actually got business done. Right. And right. even for launching new products, I used to be like, well, trade show is a great time to launch a new product. And now I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe it's not because there's so much noise going on online that it's, you know, how how movie companies release movies, they look at the calendar and they try to find a weekend where there's not some other major blockbuster coming out to compete. With. Right. So now I'm thinking for our product launches, I'd rather just do it when there's nothing else going on and we can, we can get more visitors and more, more eyeballs on what we're doing. So I'm going to try that approach with the
2: next couple of mics.
0: When talking to a guy like Dusty Wakeman, I often am intrigued by how the conversation goes. For one, I'm always a fan of talking to a fellow bass player who's also an engineer and producer, and frankly, I just love the records that Dusty's made at Mad Dog. But I'm also a big fan of guys who really stand by their product, and Dusty and Mojave Audio are both no exceptions to that. The products are phenomenal, and they really stand up to a lot of people and a lot of companies that are way above the price range of a Mojave microphone. Hell, I would put a lot of the Mojave audio stuff up against some of Al Schmidt's favorite mics, like an M149 Neumann or e 47 U47. They're probably ten times less the Mojave's are than the vintage Neumann microphones, but in a lot of cases, to my ear anyway, they sound just as good. Dusty, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for talking to us about your process as both an engineer and being in the equipment industry. It was a lot of fun to get your insight on both sides of this wonderful, strange, yet thing we call recording for all of you interested in finding Dusty's work check out his Discogs you'll see some really cool credits on there from Dwight Yoakam to Buck Owens to Lucinda Williams and so much more you can also check out Dusty's Corner at the Mojave Audio website and you can check out the Mad Dog Studio's Facebook page which is a really cool time capsule of what Mad Dog at one point once was in its glory days Welcome to Gear Talk. Now, this one is a special one because this is a portion of the interview that I decided to save for this very part of the podcast. It's got a lot to do with Mojave Audio specifically and some new releases from Mojave coming out this year. So let's jump in. Anything in the pipeline that's that's new and exciting in the Mojave lineup?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes, there is. The next expensive mic coming out high-end mic will be the ma37 and that's david royer's reimagining of a sony c37a I Which kind is of a figured be-
0: given uh, that uh, i kind of figured given the naming
1: right right and that's a beloved vintage mic that people don't know about those like they know about the neumanns but mm-hmm. among people that know it's a beloved microphone And David's been wanting to do this for 10 years. And we finally have got around to doing it. There's one prototype in existence. It's out with our friend Ryan Hewitt right now uh, at an undisclosed location on a project that I'm sworn to secrecy. So I can't even mention where it is or who the artist is. But he loves C37A. So he's the first person outside of our family to get his mitts on it. So. That'll be coming out hopefully by June 1st. I'm hoping. And then we're working on a a handheld dynamic. We've never had a dynamic before. And it's taken me years to find. Um... No. Well, David doesn't like dynamics. See, David, you know, David is an autistic genius. (laughs) And in his mind, everything is recording classical. He's not into drums and bass and and Mm -hmm. guitar amps. It's a miracle that the Royer 121 revolutionized guitar amp miking, But that's not what he designed it for. He designed it, you know, to have a stereo pair picking up an orchestra. That's how he thinks. And what kind of, de- you know, how well can he get definition among all those instruments? How 3D is it? How deep, how wide? Um uh, So that's what he designed mics for. So all these years, it's like, David, we need a dynamic mic to just, we should have one. And he's like, why? Why would you want to use a dynamic to record anything when you can use a condenser or a ribbon? And it's like, well, because I can give you a list of reasons, but he didn't really relate to my list of reasons. You know, you can't really take a ribbon mic on stage and crank up the monitors and, you know, have beer soaked spit into it or a condenser, a large diaphragm condenser, you know? So right. I finally, it's just been kind of a side project, but I've I've gotten lots of diaphragms to try out. And we finally found one that he would sign off on. So that'll be the MAD. And hopefully it'll be out this summer. Well, I've got two pro- prototypes of that. And I've had it over at Wally's house. I had it on his snare drum. Next to an SM57, so we could compare them, and it it kicked ass. It's kind of like a little more hi-fi, a little warmer SM57. And gotcha. So that'll be coming out this year too, and it'll be in the one hundred fifty to two hundred dollars price range. We're kind of going after that Telefunken M80 market.
0: Right. This'll those be the, those really have blown up in the last couple of years. Yeah, they sell
1: tons of those.
0: Well, I remember when they came out and like I was saying, I I <laughs> it, you know, a, 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 I was doing a lot of Americana stuff because my mentor Phil Milner is is primarily an Americana guy. And our our drum sessions when the Telefunk in M80s came out was a Beta 52 on the kick. Uh an M80 on the snare and a 121 on overhead. Right? can't that, go wrong
1: there yeah i'm an americana really. guy too so i can relate that's my yeah. musical world
0: yeah I, I i got to be on a lot of the one five sessions
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah uh you know it, a lot of a lot of fun but you know it's it's <laughs> I, I could tell you know a, telefunken is one of those beloved companies and you know it's just like how the hell are people like me going to get a telefunken mic and 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 i guess they they kind of answered that question with like well now you can here right have have tiny dynamic mic
2: right
1: right yeah Uh, they've done very well with that mic so we're kind of going after that little kind of the high end of the dynamic microphone market and then the the next mic after that is going to be like our enhanced SM7B, like a a pro broadcast mic. And I hope to have that out this year.
0: Well, that, that definitely piques my interest as a podcaster.
1: Oh, you'll, you'll have to be one of the first beta testers. You can try it out. We, we've talked about doing a USB mic, but we, we, we're not going to and We never will. Uh, You know,
0: it's, USB mics are a niche market, and you know I'm doing this. I've been doing this for for those of you listening. Uh, I you will have already heard it by now, and I'll I'll actually send you. Um, I've I've already done a review and in an initial demo. It's not finished. I got I uh, I have a week to finish the 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 final product, and I'll send you the full track. It's a very poppy song. Um,
2: That's with the AKG.
0: Yeah, I'm doing it. it. It came with the mic, the headphones, and uh, Ableton Live Lite. So I'm doing the whole thing with cool. with the stuff that's that's included. And I'll I'll make sure to send you send you that stuff because uh, how much is that mic? The mic itself is I think 150, and the whole Podcaster pack is you yeah know, I think 300, two fifty,
1: 300. Yeah, only the really big companies can afford to do that. Right. Because does it come with software?
0: Uh, Ableton Live Lite because a lot of
1: the mics are coming with with their own software with eq and maybe some reverb or compression or whatever and you know what happens if we sell that to somebody and then they have a problem with the software you know who's gonna talk to them you know you got to have support for that so that's way beyond their scope
0: This is Music From Blue Girl, and today is a follow-up on my chat about bass pickups in last week's Gear Talk. Now, if you missed that, I spoke in pretty great detail about pickups I have installed in my 1951 reissue Fender Precision bass. Now, I have broken a bunch of pickups in this bass. It's pretty much due to the flatwork design that has not changed really since 1951. and. As much as it is an annoyance to break pickups, it's also been kind of nice because it forces me to get out of my comfort zone and change and try different pickups. The latest addition in the instrument is a 1951 single coil style hum-canceling P-Bass pickup from Nordstrand Audio. This thing has been really fun. Compared to a traditional single coil, it is hum-canceling, obviously, with the dual coil design and has a really nice bottom end. It's a lot rounder than the traditional single coil, which, don't get me wrong, I love that tight sound, but a bigger bottom end from this bass has been a lot of fun to play with. I've also paired this pickup with another Nordstrand product, which is essentially what I consider to be a dual-tone pot, though, frankly, I am not remembering the name correctly, but I will be sure to link this product below in the description. What it is is a push-pull pot with two separate capacitors on it, essentially making two tone pots in one. This is a lot of fun for me because there is a lot of added deep low end, which for me as a synth bass player and somebody in a jazz fusion band with a lot of electronic elements, It's been helpful. Likewise, playing with the Americana stuff, which really in live settings does not have a drummer, it's been nice to be able to fill up that extra space. Now, it's also been a lot of fun for me to use because oftentimes in my previous use of this bass, I had a push-pull with a coil split on my 1951 stacked single, style precision bass pickup from the Seymour Duncan Custom Shop. So having a push-pull back in the instrument is really nice. So I'm going to stop yapping. If you want to hear more about the pickups that have been in this bass, go check out last week's episode. But for now, here is the demo of a no-name new song for Danger 8 with quad-tracked guitars, a very basic drum track, and bass guitar with this Nordstrand P pickup. In my 1951 Fender Precision Bass reissue. Enjoy! That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Dusty Wakeman for being on the show. I was so happy to have you on the show, and it was such fun to be able to share this conversation with the world. Tune in next time. We're going to have Miss Ivana Manley on the show. She's going to tell us how Manley Labs came to be and what's going on. So, as always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.